This is Dr. David Howard in his teaching on the books of Joshua through Ruth. This is session number 16, Joshua 11 through 12, Northern Campaign and Summary. Greetings. Um, we are now poised to consider the final uh, battles in the book of Joshua. Uh, these are in the northern part of the land of Canaan. Uh, these are um, in chapter 11 of the book. So if you open your Bibles to that chapter, uh, as we have seen and mentioned several times, um, chapters 9, 10, and 11 go together in the sense that each of them begin with a coalition of Canaanite kings coming against Israel. And uh, in the first case, it's a coalition of uh, kings from the hill country, chapters 9, verses 1 and 2. In the second case, it's a coalition of southern kings around Jerusalem, in chapter 10, verse 1, following. And now in 11, uh, it's in the north, the, the, the lead character, the lead king against Israel is a king named Jabin, or Yabin, uh, the king of Hazor, or Hazor. That's a very prominent city up in the northern part of the country, farther north than the Sea of Galilee. Uh, Hazor, Hazor has been excavated in the 20th century. It's a huge mound, and uh, very, it's clearly a very important city, and lots of things have been discovered uh, up there. But the list of kings that he, list of peoples that he uh, enlisted uh, came from apparently all over the country. It, uh, it's not quite as precisely geographically contained as, as, uh, as some. And uh, it mentions even, for example, in verse 3, the, the uh, Jebusites. Uh, the Jebusites were inhabitants of what later became known as Jerusalem, and that's in the southern part. So up, battles up in the north included a coalition that included at least some from the south. It might indicate uh, the the level of threat that the Canaanites perceived, that the Israelites posed uh, to them, such that they went far, cast it far and wide to get the coalition together to uh, oppose the, uh, the Israelites. Notice in verse 4, they come with a great horde of people, a number like the sand that is in the seashore, and uh, with very many horses and chariots. So we've mentioned in other segment about the, the chariots being the... Uh, backbone of the army. And uh, here's an interesting little fact. The Hebrew word for chariot is Merkabah. And in the modern Israeli army, uh, the main battle tank for a long period of time uh, has been called the Merkabah uh, tank. And so it would kind of indicate uh, equivalence that the chariots were the ancient equivalent of modern-day tanks. Uh, a very impressive horde. It mentions the, the number like the sand in the seashore. So in a way, the way that the story is being told here, and we know, of course, that God helps them and, and gives Israel the victory, kind of reminds us of in chapter 3 when it talks about the waters of the Jordan are overflowing their banks at that time of, of, of the year, kind of shows the imposing challenge that is then met by the God stopping up the waters. Here, the imposing challenge is this vast horde that, nevertheless, God gives into the hands of the, uh, of the Israelites. So again, God speaks to Joshua in verse 6, 
and again tells, encourages him, tells him, don't be afraid. Tomorrow he will give them all over to Israel and uh, hamstring their horses, burn their chariots, etc. So they do this, and uh, verse 8 says the Lord gave them into the hand of Israel. And that's obviously uh, a great victory. Interesting that the way the battle is told, uh, it's all, there's almost no details of the battle told here in a way that had been told, for example, at the Battle of Gibeon in chapter 10, or uh, Battle of Jericho or Ai. It's just uh, mentioned in, in very brief summary uh, details. They chase them down uh, away, a long way away in verse 8. And then Joshua obeyed, verse 9, did exactly what the Lord did. And then he turned back at that time and captured Hazor, Hatzor, and struck the king with the sword. Um, and uh, then in, in verse 11, they, they burned Hazor with fire. And we mentioned in earlier context that uh, when you look carefully, it's only three cities that are mentioned that Israel burned specifically, uh, Jericho, Ai, and now Hazor. And so uh, if we're looking through the archaeological record, um, we should not be surprised that the, uh, there, there's very little trace of Israel's presence in a destructive way because they were not burning cities in a widespread manner. That's why the destruction layer that we mentioned previously around 1200 or a little later uh, probably was not necessarily due to the, to the Israelites coming and burning. Uh, they, very, they very, left very little trace of what they did. Uh, they basically chased out and killed the inhabitants but did not destroy the cities. They moved in and inherited cities uh, that they did not, homes they did not build, cisterns they did not dig, vineyards they did not plant, and so on. Um, so that is an, another indication here of that. Um, none of the cities of the mounds, uh, verse 13, uh, these are these big, what are called hells. Uh, in Canaan, for sure, uh, cities tended to be built on prominent places for defense purposes, and so you'd have the walls built here, and then the cities built. And for a period of time, decades or even centuries, that would flourish, but then eventually the city would be uh, destroyed and leveled. And then eventually, because it was a good location, usually a water supply nearby, uh, there would be another city rebuilt on top of that on the ruins and eventually more. And there are these levels that uh, would be built one upon top of the other. And some went uh, quite a few levels up. And over time, they, got, they were abandoned. And so the nature took its course. And there's this kind of a mound built over top of this city. And archaeologically today, of course, we can dig down through these to find the, the different levels. And the, the earlier... The farther down you go, the earlier we are, and that's what is the subject of archaeological digs throughout uh, the, the Holy Land and the nearby lands. So this is mentioning there, none of those cities that stood on those tells, the Hebrew word is tell there, uh, did, it, uh, did Israel burn except Hazor alone, and then took the spoil. Notice what it says in verse 15, uh, another example of the obedience. We've mentioned the theme of obedience through the book. And uh, just as the Lord had commanded Moses a servant, so Moses commanded Joshua, and so Joshua did. He left nothing undone that the Lord had commanded Moses. So there's that, there's that theme running through here. And then in verse uh, 16 and following, we have a, kind of a summarizing statement. 
Uh, the same way we had at the end of chapter 13, I'm sorry, chapter 10, uh, verses 40 to 42, summarizing the campaign in the south. Here uh, we have a summarizing statement about the campaign in the north. Uh, so Joshua took all the land, verse 16, hill country, all the Negev, all the land of Goshen. It's kind of referring to the south in the lowland, the Arabah, but coming up north, uh, up to uh, 17, Mount Halak, towards Seir and Baal Gad, the Valley of Lebanon, and Mount Hermon, which is up in the north, captured the king, so I can put the death. But then there's a really interesting statement here, and verse 18 says, uh, Joshua made war a long time with all these kings. So a surface reading of these chapters, it takes us just a few minutes to actually read through chapters 9, 10, and 11 especially 10 and 11. It feels like this all happened bang at one time or within a few days or a few weeks. Uh, but that gives us a clue as to these battles maybe were not as easy as we can think of necessarily, or they certainly much longer than we think of. Uh, scholars think for various reasons that the actual battle phase of the book may have taken five to seven years. And then there's indicators that Joshua and Caleb, the ages that they lived to, there may have been another uh, 25 years or so. So probably the span of time that the book of Joshua covers is close to 30 years, 25 to 30 years. Um, it feels like it's all happening in a compressed time, but it really was not. And this is one verse that gives us an indicator uh, for that. Nobody made peace, verse 19, except the inhabitants of Gibeon. And uh, then we have a statement in verse 20 that's kind of difficult to deal with sometimes. And it says uh, the, the fact that the, these other cities did not make peace was that it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts so that they should come against Israel to battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction. There's that word haram again. Uh, and should receive no mercy, but be destroyed just as the Lord commanded Moses. So... That's a difficult one to deal with, many levels. It reminds us of God's hardening of Pharaoh's heart back in the book of Exodus. And uh, back in the book of Exodus, there are three different words for, three different ways of expressing the idea of hardening uh, the Pharaoh's heart. Sometimes it's the Pharaoh hardening his own heart, sometimes it's God, and, some, and it's different perspectives there. Those three terms occur 20 times in the chapters of the plagues in Exodus. And... Uh, for the most part, it's uh, the Pharaoh hardening his own heart. It's not till the end that we see God hardening his heart. It seems as if the Lord's hardening of Pharaoh's heart has to do with sort of him, God leaving him to his own devices. The, the Pharaoh's inclination and desire was to be, oppose Israel and its God. <clears throat> and finally, God said, enough, I'm just going to deal with the Pharaoh and... Uh, do so very harshly. And so here, obviously earlier uh, in the book, we've seen the Canaanites being very afraid and opposing Israel in, um, at Jericho and Ai, and then later. So it uh, would appear that the, the battles were taking place. Uh, God was letting them take their course in the way they wanted to go. But there was still, as we've mentioned several times by now, 
there was still the, the idea, the option uh, for them to turn to God. Rahab is the example. Maybe Knight's another example. And so, uh, again, even there, even here, it doesn't seem to be an absolute uh, condition that God was intending completely to destroy them because he obviously allowed uh, some exceptions. The final battle seems to come uh, in verses 21 to the end of the chapter where they're confronting a group called the Anakim or Anakites. And uh, they're from the hill country. And uh, Joshua devoted them to destruction at the end of verse 20, 21. There was none left, verse 22. And uh, so Joshua took the whole land, verse 23. And... He gave it to inherit. He gave it as inheritance to Israel, and then it says the final statement of verse eleven says, uh, "The land had rest from war." It's the first time rest has been mentioned in the book since chapter one, when Joshua talks to the Transjordan tribes, talking about the Lord is giving you rest there. But it is a theme uh, that we find here in the book, and uh, part of this whole the whole trajectory of the Pentateuch into the book of Joshua is that they're going to have uh, rest. Now, we'll say one thing more about, about that. Um, we'll say two things. Uh, there are two places in the book of Joshua where it says the land itself had rest. One is right here. The next is in chapter 14, uh, verse 15, which uh, now this is part of the book where it's talking about the distribution of the land. But... Uh, in verse 15, at the end of the chapter, that's the last sentence also of that chapter, and the land had rest uh, from war. Uh, we have a number of places uh, where in Deuteronomy, Samuel, Kings, there's also this idea of rest in the land. It's repeated uh, half a dozen times in the book of Judges, where we're told that the land had rest for X number of years, 40 years or 80 years. Uh, so that's a, the, uh, an important part of this whole dynamic. Uh, the rest had been promised back in Deuteronomy chapter 12 and chapter 25. And one final thing to mention is that the book of Hebrews mentions the Sabbath rest uh, as well in chapters 3 and 4 of Hebrews. And it's contrasting uh, the rest in the Old Testament that the book of Hebrews claims that uh, Joshua did not give his people rest, Hebrews chapter 8, verse 4, uh, as opposed to the Sabbath rest that is inaugurated by Christ, uh, his coming. So there's a little bit of a contrast there. Uh, but I would say the perspective in the book of Joshua is that this rest is a good thing. It's not a permanent rest. It's not a spiritual rest. But it is a, a temporal rest uh, from the wars that are, that are placed. So the, the mood is dramatically changed after this. And pretty much the rest of the book is much more sedentary and peaceful, and uh, these, this statement sets the stage for the next uh, portions of the books. So all the loose ends seem to be tie, being tied up now, and Joshua is emerging as a strong leader, and uh, there's the, <clears throat> the new task of distributing uh, the land. Um, so we'll move right into the final chapter of the first section of the book, uh, which is chapter 12. And chapter 12 is not really giving us any new storyline. The battles are done, and uh, we're ready to move into the distribution of the land. But it's interesting because chapter 12 kind of forms uh, a wrap-up, an appendix of uh, 
to the whole first section of the book. Uh, there's a narrative wrap-up in chapter 11, verses 16 to 23, kind of the summary uh, there. But this chapter kind of repeats it from a different angle, namely giving the list of the kings and the territories that were, were conquered. So repeated again, chapter 12, verse 1, here's the kings of the lands whom the Lord, the people of Israel uh, defeated, took possession of their lands. And it mentions the names of some of the kings. Uh, uh, east of the Jordan mentions it, verse 6, Moses, the servant of the Lord, and the people of Israel defeated these people. So the first six verses are looking backwards at what God had done under Moses. And then uh, chapter 12, verse uh, 7 mentions the kings and the peoples uh, whom Joshua and the people of Israel uh, defeated. And he took, took their land, and notice what it says in verse uh, 7. It says, parenthetically, in the middle of the verse, Joshua gave their land to the tribes of Israel as a possession, according to all their allotments. We'd seen that earlier in chapter 11 as well. So this is, forms the, kind of the preview of what, we, what we're going to see in the, le, in the next part of the book, chapters 13 to 31, 21, with uh, distribution of the land, that Joshua, along with Eliezer the priest, stands in a position of authority on God's behalf, and giving the land now to Israel. Uh, he's giving them title to the land, not in perpetuity, not forever. Uh, the land is always God's, but yet the, he's now giving it, and we see here the first time where we see Joshua himself in a position to be actually giving that land to tribes. Uh, then we have here, uh, starting in uh, verses, verse seven and following, we have the list of the kings, but there's kind of a, uh, there's two different sections uh, here. The uh, first section, verses 7 and 8, give us a picture of the territories, uh, the parts of the land that are, are given. And then uh, from verses 9 and following, we have the list of the kings. And all, when you count them up, it's, all, it's 31 kings that's mentioned in verse 24, but it goes carefully one by one. So verse 8, the king of Jericho, one. King of Ai, which is beside Bethel, one. The king of Jerusalem, one. The king of Hebron, one, etc. So it, here it, it feels like the, the author of the book of Joshua maybe has had a list that was kept and passed down and he was able to incorporate here, but it's a very carefully constructed list. Today it would be in a, spread, a spreadsheet and it would be the, in the columns here. And so on. And in, in a sense, it lends verisimilitude. It, it lends a feeling of truthfulness that, yeah, we know that's happened and, and we, can, we can identify the kings, we can identify the cities, we can identify the territories for, the, for all of this. So the narrative account in chapters 9 to 11 gives, and actually 6 to 11, uh, gives us the storyline of these things, but this is the, the data, the raw data of just the, the facts and the numbers. It's kind of a fitting way. It's a hard chapter to read. It's not very interesting to read from our perspective. We don't know where a lot of these cities were. But it, from the perspective of the author of the book and the audience that he's writing for, it's one that, that helps them see that this land is theirs and they, these were given by God through Joshua. And here's the kings that were overcome. This is part of their territory. And um, that forms the foundation for the, the, the lead-in to the real detailed uh, chapters about the, the distribution of the lands in chapters 13 to 31. This is Dr. David Howard in his teaching on the books of Joshua through Ruth. 
This is session number 16, Joshua 11 through 12, Northern Campaign and Summary.